This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. We're living in a society where people are weak and they're saying, oh, like, you know, like, you're going too hard, you're doing this. Like, you can do more. Let's give it up for Shark and King of Digital Marketing, Sabri Zubin. The fastest growing agency in Australia. If you don't expect a very high standard from yourself, no one else is going to. The moment that you get to a place where nothing that you're doing is difficult anymore is the day that you start dying. But then I just basically sat down with myself and had the commitment. It's like, it doesn't matter how hard this is. You are not going to come up for air for 36 months. And just when you thought that you had like one nostril above water, you're thrown straight back into the heat of battle. What the fuck are you doing? What's the single best decision that you've made in your life that you think has led to outsized returns? Marrying my wife. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything that is more important and impactful than the decision of who you choose to spend the rest of your life with. And the worst thing that you can do as a dad is to show up and be the scraps of a man and give your family the dregs of the day. What's been the darkest moment for you? I'd say the most challenging periods for me in business was... Sabri, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on again. I think everybody knows that you're a marketing genius. What I wanted to tap into today was, I guess, some of the other philosophies that you have outside of marketing, business orientated. And the first one, the first kind of topic or question that I wanted to ask you was, how do you break free of the mindset of being poor? I've heard you touch on this a few times, but I've never really heard you go into detail about it. And I'd love for you to then continue that on with, when was that point for you when you kind of had that mindset shift, that real realization of going from, you know, a poor mindset into this abundance mindset and understanding how to make money? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that a lot of your beliefs and the way that you view money and your relationship with money are inherited by the environment that you grew up in. I grew up in a household where there was a lack of money. We weren't like poor or walking around eating the bark off trees or anything like that, but it definitely wasn't like abundance, right? So I think that at certain different inflection points is you're still constantly kind of defragging your brain of any of that poverty mindset. And it's not until you come into a place where you have more money than you have time is when you start to look at the relationship, that, the way that you kind of treat money. And for me, it was at a point where I was like, I had no more time, right? I was working 17 to 18 hours a day and I had cash coming into the business and I just physically had no time to do anything other than work. This was like you know, in the full on like war mode, starting the business, doing anything that I could not to be broke anymore. And then, you know, I was like, I want to hire a cleaner. Like I want to hire a cook. Like I want to have help. Right. And it was when I really started to look at the value of my time and start to think, Hey, like, okay, if I spend another hour making sales calls, like I'm probably going to make 10 or 20 grand or I could go and cook myself dinner or clean the house, a task that, you know, you can get done for 50 bucks an hour, something like that. Um, and it would then cost me 10 to $20,000 to clean my house. But because I grew up in an environment where I didn't have a lot of money, I had like a sense of pride of doing things mm. and was like, I can't do that. Like, that's like, that's like what rich people do. Like, I can't go and like hire somebody to clean my house. Like, you know, like, don't be so proud and right. Don't be like, don't, don't think of yourself so highly that you don't need to do that. Right. And that's just like a limiting belief. It's just like, if you can afford to get help and if that's not the best use of your time, then you shouldn't be doing that anymore, right? And as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, like you're constantly looking at like the value of your time and where is it, where are you best going to invest it? You can always make more money. You can't make more time. And so I think that it hasn't just been one 
thing. It hasn't been like, oh, just when I had, you know, a hundred grand in the bank account, I was like, okay, cool. Like, and I had to just deal with that demon once. Like it's constantly dealing with that demon of like, dude, like the same thinking that got you here is not going to get you here. Mm. Right. So something's got to change. And we all have the same 24 hours in a day, right? The billionaires, if you aspire to do that, the millionaires, if you aspire to do that, everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. But the people that are quote unquote more successful in whatever the field is, whether it's fitness or business and money, is they've figured out how to get more leverage from that 24 hours than you have. Mm. So like people often look at a a lack and a claim of a lack of resources to why they haven't achieved the goals that they want rather than a lack of being resourceful. And a lot of the time in a lot of people's businesses is they are paying with the most expensive currency in the world, which is their time mm. rather than just buying that help. So there's first just coming to terms with that you have those, those two mechanisms to pay for things, money and time. And you just need to think, what do I have more of? What's more valuable to me? Is an hour with my children more valuable to me than paying for this convenience and solving this thing? And, you know, people, there's a saying like, you know, it takes money to make money. And I don't believe that because I had no money and I made money. But as you go up the rungs on trying to make more money or trying to be more successful and get more leverage in whatever it is that you're doing, you need to use money as like a tool mm. to be able to do that. Whether it's hiring team members, you know, paying for conveniences. And once you really know the value of your time, and that's an exercise that I encourage everybody to do, is to just physically look at how much revenue did you generate or how much profit did you make and divide it by the number of hours that you made, right, across your whole business. And then that's what your hourly rate is. And just say to yourself, I'm not going to do anything that's under that hourly rate. If I can hire somebody to do that, then that's not the best use of my time. Because if I do that, I'm going to be sacrificing for that for my business. So that's like the tangible example, yeah. but it's really a psychological change that happens. I think it's an interesting one, right? Because I think at some point you do have to make that shift. Like there's a point in time where you have to be frugal, but that, like you said, that mindset won't necessarily take you to that next level. Yeah, and I, I, like it's not so that you just you need to splurge on stupid things and you need yeah. to go out and start buying Gucci belts and shit, right? And boat shoes. Like that's not what I'm saying. Like yeah. I still like I still practice practice frugality and financial discipline in my life. And like before buying anything, like I really make a conscious effort to think about. Do I need that? And yeah. do I want that? And it's not so from the financial utility of like, do I want to spend the money on this thing? It's more so I don't want to create clutter in my life. Mm -hmm. And the more things that you accumulate, the more clutter that you have. And so I think that like, it's not that you just don't want to be frugal and you just want to spend money lavishly, but it's about getting clear on the things that you value more than anything and making the investments in those things. And there's not like one little psychological principle that I can, you know, tell people of like, this is how you combat it because it's different for every person, right? Some people might not have any problems in hiring help or getting a nanny or getting a maid or getting like a cleaners and cooks and people to help them, right? And they might be happy to do that. But then when it comes to their business, they don't want to hire a personal assistant or they don't want to hire team members and they want to try to wear all the hats themselves. I think it's really looking at like, what is it that you struggle with? But you won't be able to combat all of that stuff until you really get clear of what would you be spending your time on if you choose to indulge in this thing or spend the money on this thing. It's not about just spending it and doing nothing. It's about spending it and then doing something that's more valuable with that time, whatever that value looks like to you, whether it's growing the business or spending the time with the family. What is that, that value to you then? Like what are the things that you've spent more time on as the business has grown, as you've had the ability to, to kind of spare up some time, yep. you know, that's not spent on the business. 
Well, I think that there's two lenses. One lens is like, what do you spend your time on within the business? And what are the the luxuries or the things that finances are able to buy you that you can spend on more leverage tasks? Like for me, I look at myself really as like a collector of people, right? And collecting smart, talented, hungry people, and then putting them in in, an environment um, and then giving them the environment that they need to kind of flourish. And you need money in order to be able to do that. So instead of doing fulfillment or going to client meetings or client lunches and, you know, being in the operations of the business, it's like, let me spend my time on things that I'm going to get much more leverage on, like finding a talented person to add to my team, you know, thinking about incentive structures, looking at different geographies to expand out into and looking at like the bigger picture things rather than the small picture things, mm-hmm. right? that aren't going to necessarily move the money needle. And then other things like outside of work is like, I have three children. I've got three girls under the age of seven. I, you know, really do my best to be a present father. And like, I, it doesn't matter how successful that I was to be in my business is after I raise my, my daughters, if they don't think that I was a successful father or I wasn't a good role model of what it is that they should look for in a man, then I would deem myself as being unsuccessful. So like that is a big importance to me and I make the sacrifices needed in order to make that happen. I leave the house very early before they wake up in the morning. So I do that so I can be with them in the evening, right? Mm -hmm. And I can spend two hours with them. I can read them a book. I can have dinner with them. I can put them to bed. Um, so that I'm a present father, right? And they're they're just sacrifices that you that you make in order to put them into the things that you value more than anything. So I've set my my life up in a way where I can you know leave the office at four o'clock and I can go home and I can see them and I can spend that time with them. And there's that. There's my relationships with my wife. And there's also just the investments that I need to make in myself. Like running a business is a long distance run, right? It's a, and it's an endurance sport and it's sprinting. Some periods are all out warfare. It's sprinting, going as, as hard as you possibly can um, and there being no balance. But you need to have the cycles of that and you need to understand that most people see most of the success in the latter stages mm-hmm. of their career in business. It's not like sports where it's a young person's game and it's like you're in your prize fighter, you're in and you're out. This is something where the skills that you acquire over your career will compound and just like compound interest, it has an inflection right towards the latter part of your careers. If you never ever get to get to that part of your career because you've burnt out, and you haven't looked after your health and you get sick and you don't have much energy, then you're not gonna be able to play the game for the long distances of time that you need to. So I try and understand that like, I can only push out into the marketplace for that that I possess within myself. If I don't have lots of energy in myself, then how do I expect to be able to go out there, motivate a team, lead a company, be thinking about what am I gonna be doing in the next five and 10 years time and have a big vision for what it is that I want of my company and of my life if I don't have the energy to do that. So I I make those investments in myself. I make those investments in my family and I am not afraid of spending whatever money that I can for those experiences, like with my family. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have a price tag on those things. Where do you think, where do you think this, because like not everyone's wired that way in terms of family, right? Like there's plenty of businessmen that, that aren't. So like where do you think that comes from for you? Well, like, you know, I know that you've talked about being raised by a single mother. I I, I was too. Yep. So w- has that shaped you in a way? That- oh, 100%. So, yeah, I was raised by, you know, a single mother in Byron Bay, me and my sister. And I think that when you grow up without a father, for me it was really about like, well, I know the type of father that I would have wanted in my life. So I will just be that person. Right. And like people can look at that. Oh, that maybe that's a hindrance. Like you, you never had a father, all of those kind of things. But it's like, I often say that like, I would be, I would rather be raised by a strong woman than a weak man. And I think that when you start with a clean slate, 
right? You don't have any preconceived ideas of what a father should look like. Rather, you get to create that person in your mind and being like, you know, what would Superman look like? Like what would a super father look like for your children um, and getting to create that with the creativity that you've got and then step in to that. So I think like, yeah, for, for me, that's a really important thing. The family nucleus, like that, that love, that loyalty that you get from your family. And I think that, you know, especially raising three daughters, you know, it puts a level of responsibility on you of like you're basically setting up the baseline of what your daughters will accept in a partner mm. and you better be the role model and not the rule like you know what i mean like the rule not the warning mm -hmm. of what it is that they should look for so i hope that i can live up to that and i can i can fill those shoes yeah no i just think it's like it's quite because i've got a very similar mindset and i think you know um when especially being raised by a strong mother who and you you i feel like once i turned probably 16 that i really started to like understand what was happening you know and like you know just how much that she was doing you know um and and as you get older and now being a father you just appreciate like it even more like it's like as the years go on so you know it's just shaped my thinking too like i always say that it's about my 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 life mission is being a great dad and that factors into business like business is a part of that um, yeah because you see like so many issues that people have in their life that stem from childhood right everything. there's like so much emotional baggage and their reality their relationships with certain things in their life was all formed in childhood right and it's so important to be conscious of that and understand like what shaping years that they are and what those imprints are and it's like you know i always when i go home right and i always try and stop for a moment in my car and be very conscious before i walk in the door of like this is the first time that my daughters are seeing me today yeah it doesn't matter what happened in the battlefield right? It doesn't matter all the difficulties and complexities that you need to deal with as an entrepreneur, all the different fires that are going on, all the roadblocks, all the problems that it is that you're trying to solve in your business. These girls are just young girls that are just seeing their father. And the worst thing that you can do as a dad is to show up and be the scraps of a man and give your family the dregs of the day, right? And give them the burnt out, washed up, tired dad that walks through the door like a zombie. I refuse to be that guy, right? And so I try to take a moment, just a minute of being present before I walk in the house of being like, you know, like daddy's home and like, you know, being the hype man and like rallying everyone up in the family because that's the also the impression of like what it is that you're setting as the baseline, right? Because then if you're walking in and you're like, you know, you're moping and you're walking in and you're like, yeah, it was a really rough day and you're da, 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 like, that is what you're saying is acceptable for somebody to do. And it's not, it's not acceptable. Like, it's just not, it's not fair that, you know, with all the demands that business, like they didn't ask to be born, right? So it doesn't matter what happened to you in your day. Like you have to show up to them with the same energy and enthusiasm that you show up to your business with or all the things that it is that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely love that. What's been the darkest moment for you in business? I'd say the most challenging periods for me in business was two different chapters. The first chapter was I had, you know, sold a few businesses. I'd run some businesses into the ground. I'd had some exits. I had run some businesses on autopilot and I'd recently gotten married. My wife had agreed to spend the rest of her life with me. And we had a destination wedding in Bali, came back and had no money in the bank account and was like, what the fuck are you doing, 
right? Like you need to pull your finger out and actually commit to something and not just bounce around from shiny object syndrome to shiny object syndrome. And you need to commit to doing something all the way. And, you know, I grew up in sales. I'd sold everything that you can imagine, was the top salesperson at every company that I ever worked for, for however long that I'd ever been there, right? And I hadn't done selling for a while. And I started the business up and I never forget, I was like, hey, I designed a little PDF that I was going to start cold calling people with and was like, this is the date. You're going to start on the 14th of March. That's go time. And I woke up in the morning at 4 a.m. I went for a run. It was a cold morning, got back, got on the telephones. And after that first day, it was like just getting bruised up on the phones. I was like, this is a lot harder than I remembered, right? Um, and... I'd, I'd just been getting bruised up on the telephones and then I did that another day. And then it's like the little bitch in your mind kind of comes out and being like, oh, the market has changed. Maybe you can't do this and starts to like that negative talk starts to kind of seep in. Um, but then I just basically sat down with myself and had the commitment. It's like, it doesn't matter how hard this is. You are not going to come up for air for 36 months. I don't care what it is that you have to do. I don't care the rivers you have to cross, the dragons you have to slay, the mountains you have to climb. You're going underwater and you're not coming up for oxygen for 36 months. And so, and then it was like, after I had that conversation with myself, it was like day three, I got my first client. Um, and that, that whole first six months was just brutal. It was a complete slog and... I was, I was doing all the selling by day, doing the fulfillment by night. That was like, like a really challenging period for me. And I was literally selling to put food on the table, right? It was like, nothing will give you more motivation than that. And I remember like when I started the business and it was like, I literally had no money in my bank account. And I was like, put the last $50 into like a VoIP account on Pennytel mm. and just started dialing. Right. And that was definitely a, a very challenging period. And then I think that after I got out of that period, I then what had to do what I call like crossing the chasm. And it was going from being like, you know, a cash flow business and like a solo operator and then making the conscious decision of wanting to build a team. And it's never like this, right? Everyone thinks it's just like this and you get clients and it's just like, it's like this, it's like this chaotic wild, it's like riding a bull on crack. It's just the most wild chaotic experience ever. And so I had made the decision of like, yep, I want to build my team. I want to build a real company. And then a whole new bunch of problems emerge, right? Getting ready for that scale. And then you'll have people that you hire that inevitably come in and don't work for whatever reason. And then they leave. And just when you thought that you had like one nostril above water, you're thrown straight back into the heat of battle, right? And you're spinning like multiple plates. There's all these things going on. And that was a real difficult period for me. Like I hired my first sales guy, it didn't work out. Second sales guy, it hired out. Then again, a little bitch reared its ugly head. I don't think anyone else can sell this like you can sell it. Yeah, right? it's very, it's a very high, complex sales cycle. No one's going to know this like you. You're always going to be the one that's going to be selling this. And the third guy worked out, right? Then I hired a, another guy. Then I had two sales guys, and I was like, okay, things are going now, right? Then one guy leaves. Then you get another two. And then that happens in all different areas in the business. It happens in sales. It happens in operations. It happens in fulfillment. And then as soon as somebody leaves, you're straight back into it, spinning another plate. And for me, the, I didn't really cross that until I had 13 people or so in my company. And I had like two people for each function. So if one left, the other person would be able to pick up slack. And then when the new person was brought on board, that person would train them up. And that was like when I got a little bit of breathing room, so to speak. So there was kind of two different ascension points for me. Was there ever a period, like, of course there was, right? But like the little, that little bitch in your head that you're talking about, how do you manage that? Like, obviously you mentioned that it's, it is very much just about having these conversations with yourself. Yep. But were there external factors too? Like, are you a routine person? 
you know, um, like what are the things that you do to overcome that negative self-talk? Because especially in the early days, it's like, as you mentioned, especially in agency lands, like it's, you're trying to scale people and they don't always work out. And in those moments, that's when you, you gotta, that's, that's what really matters. The first thing is to coming to, to terms and understanding like the duality of man and understanding that like there is this little bitch that lives inside of your head that is constantly pulling at your heels and telling you to do things that aren't in light with what is in your best interest to do. And it's that same little bitch that comes out when you wake up to hit the gym in the morning and it's raining outside. And they're like, bro, you worked out every day this week. You're sore. Just take it easy, right? Just take it easy. Just rest. It's all good. Like you can, you can catch up on this tomorrow. Your gym clothes, they're in the laundry. Like you don't know where your shoes are, right? Just, just rest. Just take it easy. You've been working too hard. And so what I do, the moment that that little bitch rears its head, I just let it know that I'm the captain. And I'm like, okay. You came out and you tried to tell me that I shouldn't do this. So we're going to be doing an extra set of every muscle group today. And then we're going to finish with some high intensity sprint training for 15 minutes for you even suggesting that I wasn't going to go to the fucking gym today. Right. And letting them know. And it's the same thing on when you're on the telephones and you're making calls. Oh, you, you don't think I should call that prospect, do you? Right? The little bitch comes in, tries to justify. It's been a great day. You've sent out five good proposals. Tomorrow the calendar's stacked. There's lots of things. Oh, okay. We're going to make another 25 phone calls and we're going to go that extra little bit harder. So it's something that always comes up, right? And most we're living in a society where people are weak, right? And they're saying, oh, like, you know, like you're going too hard. You're doing this. Like you can do more, right? And it's like, if you don't expect a very high standard from yourself, no one else is going to, right? So you need to be that person that holds yourself accountable more than anybody. And there needs to be repercussions for you entertaining and dancing with the devil and, and, and taking that little bitch onto the judo mat, right? And making sure that it understands that it, it can't keep on coming out and telling you to not do things that are within your best interest and being aware to be able to catch that early. And then understanding what are the actions that you took to make that little bitch come out and start to whisper in your ear in the first place because there's always little chinks in your operation of why that happened. Or maybe instead of thinking like, you know, I'll pack my gym bag in the morning, that thing is fully packed the night before because you know that's just going to be a friction point for you going to the gym in the morning. Whereas all of the clothes that you need to wear, everything is already packed. It's more work to unpack that, go have a shower at home instead of going to the gym, right? And it's about setting up those points. So I do think on the other ends of that, it's not just about like grinding until there's blood dripping out of your eyes and just like this hustle porn culture. You need to have things that you do that renew you. For me, it's like I've got a sauna in my house, cold plunge. I do that every night. I spend, you know, an hour and a half with my wife just uninterrupted doing those things and have that quality time. And you need to have like a renewal scheme that allows you to go out into the marketplace and push that hard. But that's how I look at it. Yeah, it's 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 like it's the discipline muscle, right? It's like just doing what you said you would do. It's not even about the routine or what you're doing in the routine. It's like, did I say I was going to do that? And then did I do it? A hundred percent. That's the number one thing. It's like, you can't start your day with a lie. You can't be like, I said that I was going to do this. And then I literally just lied to myself. Like why even say that you're going to do it? If you say something that you're going to do something, the last person that you want to let down is yourself of like lying to yourself because then you're just going to let that spill into all different areas of your life. And you've got it. Like, it's, it's funny. Like, um, after I had my daughter, I kind of stepped away from the gym a bit. Right. And it was like, it was a fucking excuse. Right. But it was like, and then getting back into it now, like, you know, I've, I've been really disciplined for probably, you know, about one and a half months now. And yep. just the change 
not because, yeah, I mean, physically you feel good, right? But like the confidence that you get from like staying disciplined, even if it's a diet, like I've been doing a diet, training, you know, disciplined, you know, the, the best I've been since having my daughter, but it like it just comes out in everything you do. Definitely. Like, if, you're, if your like personal life is a shambles, if your, you know, your office is dirty, your workspace is dirty, your car's a mess, like those things all represent themselves in your business, right? It's like how you do anything is how you do everything. And that's definitely been something, it's like a phenomenon that I have observed is that like all of the, that discipline, doing really difficult, hard things, either I can conquer that first thing in the day or I can just constantly do really difficult things then doing difficult things in other areas of my life, like having difficult conversations with people, holding people accountable, calling that client, doing that thing, following up on that invoice, right? Not that I'm doing those things now, but that's, it's just all a muscle that you build into it. And you just have to come to terms with there is going to be a part of your day where you're going to be doing things that are difficult. And the moment that you get to a place where nothing that you're doing is difficult anymore is the day that you start dying. Yeah, that's the truth. What's the single best decision that you've made in your life that you think has led to outsized returns? So it doesn't have to be a business decision. It could be anything. Marrying my wife. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything that is more important and impactful than the decision of who you choose to spend the rest of your life with, right? That is just, it has such a profound bleed into just everything. It's like, that's like, just like I was saying, like, hey, like I'm try, I try to be like a really good male role model, right? Or try to be the measuring stick of like what a man should be like and how a man should show up. And it's the same thing with my wife. It's like she's setting the baseline of like what a mother should be, what a wife should be, right? What a sister should be. All of those different things is she is setting that, that, that you know, case study realistically and that example for, for my daughters. And you want them to be your biggest cheerleader, right? And just the same as you want to be that for them. And if you pick the wrong partner, it's just going to make everything that you do in your life hard. It's like going to be friction that just grinds on everything. So, you know, I was with my wife for many years before she became my wife. And there's, I, I tell my friends that aren't, they don't have a partner and they're looking for a partner or anything like that. It's just like, this is like the most important decision that you're ever going to make for anything, it's going to compound forever or it's going to negatively compound and it's going to spill into your business. It's going to spill into the relationships that you have with your friends. It's going to be your family nucleus. So I think that picking that partner is, there's nothing that I could say ever for anything that would ever outweigh that decision. And what, what do you think in your eyes or if you were giving that advice to a friend, what advice would you give them in regards to picking the, the part, your partner, your life partner? I would say that like by and large, you want to look at like the big building blocks and the things that you value and the morals that you have. And I think the, the biggest pitfall that a lot of people have is they look for like common hobbies or common interests when they're, they're things that change over time, right? Morals, the way that you think that a family should operate, you know, different roles, understanding that like a family is a team, mm. right? It's not a dictatorship or a monarchy or anything of these things. It's like, it's a nucleus, it's a team, right? And everyone has different roles. And I think that, you know, while like natural human beings, we tend to just like the first thing that attracts us is naturally looks. And then it's like, okay, are we compatible? Do we have the same interests? All of those kind of things. But understanding that like 
looks will fade, hobbies will change, people will come and go, right? And what is that baseline of like morals, ethics and the vision that you guys both have Mm -hmm. for in your life? And I think that people that are married are even not married, right? It's like all people can benefit from simply sitting down and getting on the same page and just being like, you know, if you're dating someone, it's getting serious, is having the conversation of like, what does the dream life look like for you, right? If you were to play this thing out over the next 20 to 30 years, what would need to happen for you to look back and say like, I had an amazing life and I had an amazing partner, I had amazing children, an amazing family, what would need to happen? What is it that you would want? Would you be traveling? Would you have multiple homes? Would your kids go to school? Would they not go to school? Where would they go to school? What would they do? What would you do on your weekends? And really getting clear of like what type of life that you're trying to build with somebody and then seeing if they align. No, I hate traveling. I never want to ever leave Australia. I never want to leave the US. I don't want to live here. I don't like doing this. I want to put the kids in daycare as soon as I can. Like whatever those things are is just having those conversations. And then it's not a once-off conversation that needs to be had. It's like something that needs to be revisited once a year at a bare minimum. Hey, baby, right? Are you getting everything that you need from me? Am I showing up? Am I doing everything? Do you feel like I'm loving and supporting you, right? How do you feel like we're going? What do you want to change? These are all the things that I want to work on. These is like, either I had to sit down and think what success looks like in the next 12 months, both professionally, personally, for our family. This is like what it would look like. This is what I, I can bring to the table for that. This is what I need you and your help and your support with. What is it that you need? How do you feel? And asking those same questions back and then just getting on the, on the same page. Because most relationships break down from a lack of communication um, most things, even in business, most team members don't work out from a lack of communications or hard conversations that aren't being had that needed to be had. People have misaligned expectations. So just getting down and getting on the same page as your partner, you know, like in my household, we call it team Subi, right? And it's like, we're all on the team. We're all on team Subi, baby. Like, and we all know where we want to go. And so it's just making sure that we have those conversations and everyone's clear, everyone's happy so that there's not things that are like festering. And that doesn't mean that there's things that don't pop up that you need to work on. But if you're having these conversations frequently, you can catch them, right, before it becomes a big thing. Yeah, and life's hard, right? So like it does get hard at times. And it's like I think the communication becomes really important in those moments because it's very easy. And I And this kind of comes back to picking the right partner too, but it's like, it can get easy, like you said, like if you're not paying attention to your own morals and values, like even showing up. They come home, you've had a shit day, you put your stress on your partner, they put, they react and it just becomes this spiral um, and it, it can happen, you know, and, and but it does really take that open communication, that regular sit down to just be like, all right, you might be frustrated, what's going on? You know, like, why are you frustrated? How can I help you know, on my end to take some of that frustration away? You know, especially when you, 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 you know, even me, I've just gone through becoming a parent, right? And that's just a complete uh, adjustment that you have to make, you know. Um, can't be as selfish as what you once were. And, you know, you have to, especially um, one of the most profound things for me was like just um, what women as mothers have to do like it is it is on another level what they have to do you know and so um being the supporting act and 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 taking some of that stress of you know um wearing the load of parenting at times you know so for me it's when i get home at six o'clock that's it you know if you want to work you can work later but you work at nine o'clock you know and so um, little things like that and just trying to keep communication open. Like I can't speak to that enough as well. Yeah, it's just, it's something that it's so simple, right? But it's like 
hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life, right? And what is easy to do is just not to have these conversations, to not book in the time on the calendar and make it an actual event that you do and just to kind of float through life. But then you have a hard life because all this stuff is festering up in the background that you're not addressing, right? Where it's like, yeah, you can have those hard conversations and it's like, you know, then things just are a lot more smooth and clean and you want to try and keep like your home life and your all of that as clean as possible. Everybody's got stuff that they're dealing with. Everything There's always things going on in people's lives. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just having those conversations, keeping that, that dialogue open and simply asking somebody like, are you getting what you need from me? Like, am I showing up? Because other people might not feel comfortable having that conversation because people, human beings, natural tendency is to avoid confrontation at all costs, mm -hmm. right? And have difficult conversations. They want to avoid them at all costs. But if it's in the calendar, just a check-in. We're just doing the check-in, right? It's like people do quarterly check-ins with their team, but they don't do it with the person they spend the rest of their life with. It's yeah. insane. Yeah, even monthly date night. You yeah. Get out, you just lay it all out on the table. Yeah. How do you define wealth? So I'm interested in that and I'm also interested in as you've like as you've been able to grow and become successful and run a successful business and more you've you've obviously had access to more funds and resources how do you think about wealth you know is it something are you someone who focuses purely on the business and you're like this is my one investment I'm all in on this do you do you look at other investments as well yeah. and how do you define wealth to yourself so I define wealth as being a eudaimonic polymath, which is basically someone that is well-rounded in all different areas of their life. It, the word wealth to me, that's what it means. It means abundance in all areas of your life and health in all areas of your life. I don't associate the word wealth with money, mm -hmm. right? And so like I touched on earlier, like I wouldn't deem myself as being successful you know, if I had billions of dollars in the bank, but my daughter thought I was a lousy father, mm -hmm. right? Um, or if I was really out of shape or if I had a horrible relationship with my wife. So I look at wealth as having, you know, multiple areas of your life that are balanced and that have abundance in them that I'm in great shape, that I've got great passionate relationships with my wife, right? That I have very healthy relationships with my daughters and I have a lot of fun, right? That my businesses are growing month on month and we're making more money than we did last month. And that I'm also working on my own self, right? And I'm getting better as an individual in whatever the pursuits are that I'm really interested in, and that I've got my fascinations. That's the areas that I look for. I always structure my years of like, what is it that I want to achieve in business? What do I want to achieve in relationships, personal health, and all of those different things? Um, because they all interact. There's a relationship between them all, right? If I'm in better shape, my business does well. If I'm in better shape, my relationships are better. I've got more energy to show up, mm -hmm. right? If things are really good at home, and I'm in a very clean environment, mentally and emotionally, then I've got the space in my mind to get enough room to be able to think of like the big picture things and get a lot of throughput in my business. Mm -hmm. So that's how I summarize wealth is being balanced in all of those things. The second part of your question is I look to invest in places that I have an advantage. I have no advantage in the stock market. I have no advantage in the S&P 500. That is not an area that I have an information advantage on than the other people that I'm going to. So I try to stack the deck in my favor and play games where it is rigged in my favor, mm -hmm. right? The area that I operate in is buying attention, right? I day trade attention and I flip that into money. And that's where I have spent a disproportionate amount of my time and I have a severe advantage in that market. Mm -hmm. So the vehicle that I do that is business building. 
It's in building my own business. It's investing in other businesses and it's applying my superpower to those businesses to get outsized returns. Mm -hmm. So the vehicle that like I'm doing that in right now is predominantly through my businesses and the other businesses that I invest in um, because that's where I get the best returns. Yep. Awesome. And they're, they're, they're the areas that I'm in the most control of. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I think you can kind of, it's the shiny object, object syndrome that you mentioned before. Like if you just do one thing really, really well, it's usually enough. To yeah, like I, I was infected by the shiny object syndrome early on in my career and I paid the, the price for that mm -hmm. dearly, right? And there's lots of people talking mad shit online and multiple income streams and diversification. If you just look at the Forbes rich list, or you look at anybody and all of those people, not all of them, the vast majority of them made their wealth concentrated in one thing. And then once they'd got their nut, then they went and they invested that and, and created multiple streams of income. But how they all got it in the beginning is usually from concentrating on one thing. Yeah, it's funny. Like I was listening to something the other day and they said, you know, um, initially to generate enough revenue to fund your life and, and then a little bit more, you have to concentrate on one thing and then to protect your wealth. Um, that's when you start to have to diversify a little bit. 100%. It's like what Warren Buffett says, like diversification is for people that don't know what they're doing, right? Like, you know, him and his late partner, Warren Buffett, um, Charlie Munger, who just passed, they like, they would say that like, if they can make like one or two good decisions a year, that's like a big win for them. So even there, while they're invested in multiple different sectors and categories, there's high concentrations in the plays that they make. You know, they're not spreading them out like crazy. They're going all in on like paying a premium for high quality businesses. Yeah, probably the, the best long-term thinkers ever, like, you know. Without those, a doubt. Those two guys. Just Incredible. Like continuously playing the long game. Um. Even when, you know, there's, uh, it's hard to think, but like they do, they were copying shit, right? Like even with like the Bitcoin and yeah. like all that and like these guys, even to, you know, Charlie, um, to, to obviously the day of his death, you know, those guys were just like continuously proving everyone wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? like I never forget when he came out and called Bitcoin rat poison. And I was like, and every, that was like right when Bitcoin was in like the biggest bull market. And they're like, these guys don't know what they're saying. These are the old dogs and stuff. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, who's saying this? And then you look at their track record and you compare it to these guys, right? Who have been in the game for decades upon decades, compounding at 32% annual returns. Like no one's in a position to talk about their strategies until they have even achieved one eighth of what they have. I'm going to switch it more into some business stuff now. A question that I have for you is how do you manage the dichotomy of bringing talented people into your business, but not overpaying or, or, you know, not over, not, not overcompensating. The thing to understand when you're hiring people is that there are multiple vectors of value that people receive in order to come and work for you. And financial compensation is just one of those vectors. And if you think about like the companies that have the worst culture in the world are the companies that have to pay the most money. Mm. So if somebody's chasing money, right, I can just give them the shortcut. I can give them the hack to go and find the most amount of money possible. And it's to go work at a bank or an insurance company. And it's cause they have by and large terrible culture and a super bureaucratical, lots of crazy stuff goes on in those environments. And therefore they have to overpay and pay a premium in order to convince people to come and work for them. Where, you know, people, think about like Facebook and Google and whatnot, by and large, those companies don't pay the most amount of money, right? Oil companies do, mm. insurance companies do, banks do, because their vector of value, that's the only part price that they can pay is financial. 
And people know when they go work at those institutions that they're making that trade-off of like, hey, it might not be good, but I'll be getting paid well, right? And I know because I've hired people from those organizations and they've come to work for me for less money than they got that. And they knew that anywhere that they went from there would be a step down financially, but they were okay with that because they simply couldn't trade their life for something that just wasn't fulfilling at all anymore. And they had to go down that route. So I try and invest in the areas again that I have an advantage, right? Culture, training, opportunity, mentorship, and providing an environment where people would pay to come and work. And they would pay to come and learn the skills that you can't learn these skills anywhere else, right? And we've earned that reputation as a business. I have people literally flying in from all these different countries, waiting out the front of my office, um, you know, people saying that they'll come and work for free, all of those kind of things because of the culture and the reputation that we've built as a business of like, you can't go and learn this stuff anywhere right? We're actually doing the stuff. So I think that just getting very clear on what your value proposition is, create an environment where people love to come in and work and then being honest and transparent with people on, on the get-go of like, yeah, look, we play competitively, right? And while we pay competitively, also that there will be other opportunities out there that will pay more for this. So for you at this stage of your career, what is the thing that you value the most? Is it money? Is it experience? Is it skills? What is it that you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Because if you're just looking for the highest paycheck, then you can probably go out there and work for a bank and make more money. So it's just you have to get clear of what you are and what you're not. Mm -hmm. And understanding that, you know, it's, like obviously th there's games that you can't compete in. Like how's a business of my size with a hundred team members going to compete with an organization that has 70,000 team members and that has like a multi-billion dollar market cap? Like I just can't. Mm. But th those businesses also want digital marketers, right? And so if you can't compete on that, you're entering in to a gunfight with a knife. So you can try and compete with that and try to like pretend like you're able to pay that, but it's just the law of like, you're not going to be able to pay that, right? And also a lot of their vehicles and those different businesses, they can realize more returns for that same skill set in their bigger vehicle than they can in your smaller vehicle. But then there's also things that there's no way that those guys can ever compete with me on. And that's where you want to play. That's where I want to play. Mm. Having fun, building an awesome culture, attracting the type of people that these people would love to work around in, to call their peers, and to have a place that you just have a lot of fun, right? And like that, that feels like play to a lot of people. Yes, there's times of stress. Yes, it's very hard pace and, you know, you have to work hard. But by and large, we have a great time. I love that. Like I've got an electric go-kart that I ride around. Yeah, office, I've seen, I've right? seen. <laughs> and it's like, I know they're not going to go work at, at a bank where the CEO is going to be riding around their electric go-kart and heard, having yeah. fun. I heard Stephen Bartlett actually talking about this and he owned an agency, um, I think the one that he previously exited out of, and he, and he was telling a story of he had, um, oh, it might have been a banker or, or something, some, someone that was very analytical, right, and he had a water slide. Not, not a water slide, just a slide in the middle of the office. And, um, you know, this person come in and was like, oh, what a, you know, like what a waste of money. Like what, what, you know, what are you doing? Like, and he said that, you know, um, what a lot of these people don't understand is leverage, right, is that, you know, we are emotional. And he would have reporters come in and they were more worried about the, the slide than, say, the office or what people were doing. And the idea that, you know, when you talk about finding leverage, it really does have to come from an emotional place and or drawing something emotionally. And so you're not going to get that in a bank, right? And the idea that, you know, creating that kind of environment emotionally, you know, when it does get hard, people have an attachment, 
you know, to the fact that it, it is fun and so on. And he was just talking about that, you know, um, if you want to find leverage, you have to think outside the square a little bit. And it's those little nuances that can make a big difference. Yeah, it really is. And a lot of people, because on the same, the other side of that coin is that you have to be very intentional about like what the employee experience is and how would it feel to rock up at your office for mm. the first day? What would the welcome emails be like? What would the swag boxes be like, right? How would you run a meeting? What would the environment be like? Um, and make sure that you do have a place that really is incredible to work, right? Because a lot of the time those investments are investments that you can make and that you do have the resources to make where you might not have the resources to pay 30% above market rate for a particular role because you're just not at that place financially. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to also if you have all those other great things, then you'll also be in a position where you don't have to do that. Mm, that's very true. Last little uh, topic is AI. So I'm keen to just hear your thoughts on it, where, where you think the true opportunity is, where you think there's a bit of noise and potentially how you're using it as well. Yeah, when AI first came out, I was like a little bit of a naysayer in the beginning and not a naysayer that I didn't think that it had merit, but I thought that it was like overhyped. And I thought that like a lot of people were, were, were like just saying that it was like the be all and you obviously read all the headlines and it's going to kill this and it's going to kill that and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Um, and then I played around with it a little bit and I was like, yeah, it's not very good. Like it's not, not very impressive. Like I can't write very good copy or I can't do that. And then I really stopped to think about like, what do I think the next 10 years are going to look like, right? And it's not so much that AI is going to kill businesses and it's going to put people out of business, but definitely the companies that use AI are going to be putting everyone out of business. Mm -hmm. So about 12 months ago, I kind of went into my dungeon and decided to like really figure it out and really figure out how to master it. Um, and it took a while. It took a long time to really get it to the point where the outputs were really, really high quality. And it's like anything in life, like you get in what you put out and like most people will use like AI where they'll be like, you are a world leading direct response copywriter. Write me a high converting Facebook ad to sell this fitness product, to sell this protein powder. And then you'll get the ad and it will be meh. It'll just be like, yeah, like that's probably 70% better than the average person off the street. And it's probably 10 times worse than any of my trained copywriters. And so then I thought, how about I spend the same time and energy and effort that I would in training up a new team member in training up this AI? And that's what I began to do. And, you know, like now I've got prompts that are like 1500 words and produce copy that would beat A-level copywriters. So like I'm definitely all in on AI. I've really been working on it and, you know, working on its application and how to use those things to get more leverage. I think the future of business looks like, you know, where typically say an architectural firm, you know, an architectural firm, you might have like, you know, two principals, then three lead architects, then you'll have assistant or junior architects. Then off the back of that, you might have project plan, project managers, and then admin and support staff under that. I think that the future looks like that like 80% of that is redundant and you have like two lead architects that are the principals that feed an AI engine like all of their designs and learns their style and then you input like the block and is there a slope on the block, how big it is and then it will basically a model would create all of the different home designs that you could possibly put on that size block and on those geometries. And then you present 
12 of those best findings to the client and they say, I like this direction. And then you go double click on that direction and it spits out more and then it gets you the output. And then you have two project managers that manage the projects through. So it's just going to allow people to get like a lot more leverage. It's not about doing less. It's about doing more. So the yeah, way that yeah, we're exactly. applying it, like with our clients is, you know, if the client's paying you a retainer, there's ultimately only certain, so many hours in a day and in a month that you can work on them for whatever that designated retainer is, right? Time is linear. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, okay, how can I continue to do the same amount of work or do less work, right? And just charge them the same. That's how most people look at it. They're looking at it as like, how do I basically keep on delivering what I'm delivering right now, but do one tenth of the input? That's the wrong lens. Instead, the way that we look at it is like, we'll still have, you know, a human being write headlines. And then once we find like a winning angle, we might give that winning headline to our AI and then be like, write me 10 variations of this. I want five of them that are targeted towards 25 to 28 year old males in Australia. And then write me also five variations that are targeted towards women of this age graphic, of this demographic. And so instead of testing 50 headlines, 20 body copies, 15 images, you can test 1600, right? And it just allows you to do more with less, right? Leverage by definition is getting more out of the same inputs. So that's the area that like I'm really excited about is like, where are the areas that you can do more of the stuff that's working to get even better results and more outsized returns? Yeah, it's definitely true. The, the inputs is what gets the best result with AI. Like you, if you want something that's not mediocre, that's actually usable, it all comes down to that input. Like yep. and just going, like, you know, it can literally be like three words that can just absolutely change everything in there. Like we've we've created a system that basically searches through every three minutes of a podcast looking for hooks and then we've created a scoring framework on the back end so that it can score the back end, like the, the body of a snippet. And so, you know, it at least allows us to, first of all, find the best moments sooner. Um, but then second of all, we can actually test how accurate it was and then keep re-engineering that prompt to find better ones. Now you don't do that by like writing three words in a prompt. It's like two pages, you got to teach it how to do it. You got to then master like, did I structure this prompt in the right way? Maybe I've got to do it this way to get a better output. So it's definitely the inputs. And then you're hundred percent correct on like, you would never want to do less. Like it's like, I think of it like this. It's like a million dollar business probably takes 60% of the people maybe, maybe 70% at the moment. You know, if you, you know, you think about some of the leverage that you're getting to build a million dollar business compared to say maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. And it's probably only going to get, you know, better um, as the technology gets better, but you still want to work your 38 hours, right? You, you're still working your 38 hours. You're still doing absolutely everything you can. You're just providing way much, way, um, you know, the amount of value you're providing for the, the client or the customer is just should be 10x. Yeah. And mo most people like, again, like, right, to challenge that, most people look at it, okay, this million dollar business requires 70% of the people, right? Even I believe that's the wrong lens. I look at it as like, if you're a million dollar business, you can't afford to have a full time data scientist in house. Mm hmm. With AI, you can. You can't afford a full-time CFO and someone that's not fractional. With AI, you can. Mm -hmm. So it's not about replacing jobs. It's also about creating roles for specific things that that business could never, ever afford regardless. So it's not like you're replacing the data scientist for that because that company couldn't get that anyway. And then the companies that could get the data scientists, they're still going to have the data scientists, but that data scientist is going to be looking at 1,500 different data sets and analyzing yeah. it. Mm -hmm. 
rather than doing MySQL models and all this crazy hardcore coding themselves through these databases, and they're going to be using AI. So it just comes down to a point of leverage. Um, and it's like a superpower. It's like complaining about, you know, like looking at when people used to do coal mining with picks and then go, oh, now they're using all these heavy machineries. Yeah, people are still driving that heavy machinery, right? Or now you're getting like places like in India where they've got like the first AI news presenter. And then obviously all the news presenters are up in arms. I can't believe that they're doing this and da, da, da. Like there are going to be industries that are disrupted. That is natural, right? But it's not about complaining and like waiting from the sidelines and, oh, this is terrible or this is going to happen or the world is doomed. Like this stuff is, is happening, right? It's either you partake or you don't partake. And the people that do partake are the ones that are going to go out there and ultimately like eat the people that aren't alive. Mm, it's very true. I think it's just about adapting as it always has been as humans, you know. We've had to do it for years and it's going to continue to be that way. Yeah. Sabri, I want to say a massive thank you for coming back on the podcast. A um, little bit of a different conversation this time but um, highly valuable um, and, you know, as I said, it's it's great to see you continue to achieve what you do because it, you know, paves the way for a, a lot of us and, and I really appreciate it and appreciate your time for coming down as well. Thank you. I enjoyed being on. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next week.